I've been in, uh, so pleased with what I've seen through the cafe, not just the quality of the, the coffee, but I, the whole reason we did that was to provide something to provide an atmosphere where people could connect with one another. Because the vision of this church involves three, three basic things, teaching, reaching out, and connecting with one another. And they're very closely entwined with one another. One of the reasons we went to one service was to give you an opportunity to connect with people that came here and you never knew before. And so I believe that's happening. But as the service ended last time and I went out there, I saw a line of people, but they weren't just standing in line, they were connecting with one another. People are hanging around. So just to encourage you, uh, and this is often how God ministers to us, is not just through the word that we hear from here, but it can be just a word you hear from somebody. It may not be just prophesying over you. In fact, I'd kind of rather it not be prophesying over you, but just we need each other. God has designed us that way, and we'll be talking about that as it goes forward. I brought the chair up because I managed to, to injure my back this week doing a very dangerous thing. I was sitting. <laughs> you understand, Richard? And I was doing my devotions in the morning, and I often put my feet up on a little table. This is out on our deck. And I must have done something else the day before because when I went to stand up, it was difficult. And I'm doing much better than I've been. I appreciate Pastor Ray filling in for me on Wednesday night for prayer. But it was just, I was not going to get in here very very well. So uh, doing much better today. But sometimes it helps if I can sit down. Usually when I've done this, I don't ever sit down. But um, it's there anyway. So that's why I brought the chair up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, this beautiful day that you've given to us. This is the day that you have made. And we just choose to rejoice and to be glad in it. To be glad that we're alive. There are some here this morning that are facing very difficult and challenging issues and can get bombarded with thoughts that, of discouragement and of failure and hopelessness. But with you, there's always hope. Because you are the God of the impossible, the God that parted a sea so your people could walk across in dry land. You're a God who's raised the dead. You're a God who calls things into existence that have never existed before. And everything you are, everything you've done, every word you promised is all focused for us and for our benefit because you love us so much. You are a good, good Father. And so we can rejoice, we can be joyful today because of how good you've been to us. And we have hope in life today, and we have a future today because of you and because of what you've done for us through Jesus Christ. And so we come to proclaim his name today. Now as we turn to the word of God today, Father, you are taking us somewhere. You're calling this church to come and to follow Jesus, to follow him with what that means for us personally and what that means for us as a church. And we're here to learn more how to do that, not just so we can jump on Sunday morning and shout and clap our hands, but so we can live it out in the trenches of life out in the world. And so, Father, we turn to the Word of God today, and we turn to the Holy Spirit to take this living Word and to breathe it into our hearts and to breathe it into our lives, that we may see things in our inner man and maybe have visions in our inner man to see what you've called us to do and how you've called us to get there. And for that, we give you thanks. I surrender to you as best I know how, my mind, my voice, my heart, and all of me to speak, as it were, only the oracles of God. And for that, we give you thanks in advance. In Jesus' name, amen Amen. and amen. Well, our key scripture is in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus said that we are to to, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and to follow him. 
that follows something else because we've been looking at uh, what the simple instructions, the simple direction that Jesus gives to every Christian. It's so simple that we miss it. And His instructions are simply to follow Him. To follow Him. And, and we talked in the very beginning of this whole direction, because this is a major series, and then there are minor series underneath it, the, uh, the, the, was, which is that the, this solves everything. If you want to know God's will for your life, it's to f- follow Jesus. And if you follow Him, He'll get you there. But we get so easily distracted by trying to figure out how are we going, when are we going to get there, what do I have to do? And all He says is just follow me. But to follow Him, you have to keep your eyes on Him. To follow Him, you have to be listening to Him. To follow Him, you have to be focused on Him above everything else. And Satan works so hard to provide distractions for our lives, issues for our lives, not just distractions of busyness, but where we can get offended and upset at people, or even offended and upset at ourselves. All of those are distractions to get your eyes off of Jesus. In in, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, he gives us the simple instructions again. Looking unto Jesus. He tells us there to lay aside the sin and the weight that so easily besets us, or the other way around. Looking unto Jesus, the author, the beginner, and the finisher, the completer of our faith. And so that's what we're about. But then we saw that Jesus didn't give them any explanation of what that meant, where they were going to go. He just said, follow me. It's a personal thing to follow. But then as we saw as we got into these verses later on, He began to let them know what that involved. And this is what this verse in Matthew 16, 24 says. Is you are, Jesus said to His disciples, if anyone desires to come after Me, there's two things He's got to do. He's got to deny Himself. We already talk, That's what we've been talking about over the last few weeks. What does it mean to deny myself? It doesn't mean to kill myself. It doesn't mean to I can't enjoy life. What it means is it means to, to no longer see yourself separate from Christ no longer to see your relationship with the world separate from Christ. No longer to see your relationships with people separate from Christ. Now that sounds, once you get a hold of it, that sounds simple. But as with all of these things, it's the application of that that we begin to realize how difficult it is and how much we need the Holy Spirit to help us to do that. Because basically what that amounts to is in every situation, in all the decisions I make in life, in my relationship with every, I have to put Christ's, what He wants first. Because if I'm going to look at you through Him, I'm going to look at you through His eyes. I may not like you, I do, but I may not like you, but I, can't, I don't have the liberty anymore to decide whether I like you or not based on what I think. I've got to look at you through Him and what you mean to Him. And that changes everything. Because I've got to look at people through how Jesus sees them. And He doesn't see them with all their imperfections. He doesn't see them with all their difficulties. He doesn't see them with all their weaknesses. He sees them through His love for them. And we are commanded to see one another through His love for one another. And just in case we don't realize how far that's willing to go, Jesus died for that person you don't like. Jesus died for that co-worker who manages to irk you every day at work. He died for that nasty boss. Not here, of course. That nasty boss who just, you know, I, I worked for a guy who, who just, I've worked for some interesting bosses, all right? And I just walked in Christ's love towards them. And it was amazing how it changed around the relationship. 
And if you, we've got to begin to see people as Jesus sees them, and he shed his blood for them. So that's what we looked at. But now we're going to go on to the, that was hard enough as it is, now we go to the second thing. So we, let him deny himself. Second thing is to take up his cross. And so this goes from bad to worse. Because <laughs> a cross is a place of death and suffering. A cross is a place of death and suffering. But what's in my heart to do about this whole verse is if you've been a Christian for very long, you know that verse. Jesus said, we're to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Him. Okay, now what do I do? Well, we've got to go back and find out whether we're denying ourselves. What does it mean? We're going to break this down. What does it mean and how do I apply this in my life? Because we know the principle... But if, when this becomes real to you, it changes you. And it changes the way we relate to one another. And the, the indication that this is not real to us and we're not truly walking in it is we still have issues with one another. I'm talking about church people. We're commanded to love the world and we can't get along with each other. Somebody's sitting in my seat this morning. How dare they sit in my seat? Don't they know that's my seat? I'm the one that's there every Sunday faithfully, and I was a little bit late today, and somebody's sitting in my seat. And we get so offended we can't hear the message. And that's what we're taking into the world. And that's because we really don't look at each other through Christ. We look at each other through what we think of one another. So we're not there yet. We're really beginning something together. And now he says, take up his, our cross, not Jesus's, but to take up our cross and follow him. In our times, and by the way, these notes are there, so if you want to pull these notes down at some point. I, again, I, I used to preach with no notes, and then I preached with, because I just want to follow what the Spirit has to say. And then when we had translators, I had to give some, some scriptures, so I gave them a list of the scriptures, and it's kind of grown but I'm doing this so that you can take these notes, either download them before Sunday morning, and you can follow through so you don't have to write everything down so carefully, or uh, you can see them afterwards and go over them afterwards, because basically all, all the thoughts except the rabbit trails I may take are, are laid out here. We're living at a time when the church in the United States primarily has the idea that the, the reason we got saved and the reason we come to church is because God wants us to have victory in our lives. And I believe with all my heart that's true. Victory in our lives. We're to be a live a victorious Christian life. But what we're not being told is that the path to victory is the same path Jesus followed to victory. See, Jesus was victorious over Satan, over sin, and over hell. He defeated death, hell, and the grave, the Bible tells us. But he didn't do that by coming and calling down all the power of God from heaven and destroy his enemies. He didn't do it that way. He did it by a method that we'll see in a few minutes, nobody could figure out because it was so far outside the realm of human natural thinking that it never entered into people's minds what he was doing. Even after he did it. Jesus' way to be victorious over Satan and over all the power of the enemy was to suffer and to die. 
and it makes no sense to us. And this is why we argue it with our minds and we fight it. So this is worth taking some time and breaking it down and getting some understanding. And all this is true, it's not the essence of what it means to be a Christian. It's the byproduct of what it means to be a Christian. As Christians, we've seen we are called to be followers of Christ. We are called to follow Him, and then we're called to follow Him and be His disciples. Now the word disciple sounds like a nice spiritual term, but it comes from the root of a word that none of us really like. Discipline. Three of you were excited about that. Not even excited. Three of you were interested in that. The rest of us like, go back to the victory part, Pastor. I like the victory part. (laughs) Victory in Jesus, my Savior. Yeah, I love that. But I'm going to tell you how to have victory. Victory that lasts. To be a disciple means to be a disciplined follower of Christ. Now one of the things we learned early on is a follower goes where their leader goes. A follower does what their leader does. Jesus suffered and died. So as followers of Christ, oh this is so exciting, we're called to suffer and to die with Him. Victory in Jesus, my Savior. Now I'll tell you, we're going to go next time into a little more what the suffering is. Uh, And I'll just give you a clue. It's not sickness. Because what we're going to go into is to follow what Jesus did for us, and He did it as an example. Jesus was not sick. Jesus had every resource he needed. So he may have been poor in the sense of not having possessions of his own, but he had everything he needed in abundance. So suffering is not sickness and disease. It's something we'll talk about later on. Jesus, as our leader, goes on before us. So whatever he goes through and went through, we're expected to go through There's good news at the end of this. I'll pack you up together again. But he's our forerunner and our example. So this is Matthew 16. Let's go to verse 13. And this is in the context of a story of something. And and this is why it's so important to not just take a verse. And when you're studying, just take that verse and take it out of context. A lot of the teaching out there today in the body of Christ, and of course I certainly don't know everybody or even close to everybody. But a lot of what I see and hear are, are, are either pastors or teachers that don't even use the Scripture. They'll just talk principles. See, people may get frustrated with me, but I take the Word and I break it down because this is how I think, this is how I work. All right? But others will just take a Scripture and then they'll key off of that. But in order to really understand the Scripture, you've got to understand the context of that scripture because this whole thing is a message that God is speaking to us. 
So to do this, we're going to go back and begin this story. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? This is, of course, the issue. Who do people say that I am? Everybody has either an opinion of him, or I'm shocked today. There are young people today that don't, never heard of Jesus. I, it doesn't compute up here. That means we've not done our job. They said, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Verse 15, and he said to them, and this is the crucial thing, it doesn't matter what other people say I am, who do you say that I am? Now he's saying this to men that have left everything and have been following him for a period of time. And they still don't, he's testing them, he said, but who do you say that I am? Good old Peter. Verse 16. So Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Stop there a second. Because as I was reading this one day, and met, see, the Word of God is so great. It's alive. It's alive. I mean, I've been a Christian for over 40 years. I can't tell you the times I've read that verse. And when we were began this series, I was going over this, and all of a sudden it jumped off at me. He's saying three things here. He's saying, you, per, the person of Jesus, you're the Messiah we've been waiting for, because Christ is the Greek version of Messiah. You are, you, Jesus, this person that you, because you, Jesus said, well, who do you say I am, Jesus? What's my identity? And Peter says, you, Jesus, the person we know as Jesus, isn't just the historical Jesus, you are the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. And then furthermore, the one we've been waiting for, the Messiah, is not just a deliverer, but that deliverer is the Son of God. This is an amazingly powerful statement he's making. And we'll see how important it is. Verse 17. Jesus answered and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Stay there a second. This is the, one of the highest compliments Jesus could get. Peter, you didn't figure that out. But my Father chose you and has revealed to you who I am. That this man you chose to follow is the Messiah and that the one that's the Messiah is the Son of God. My Father has revealed that to you. Now, revelation is so important to understand because revelation is something you got not through thinking, not through studying. It was just deposited in you. And it goes from God's Spirit to your spirit. We learn things. We reason things. One of the ways, wait, one of the ways to know, there's a little rabbit trail now. One of the ways to know whether it's God, you're hearing something from God is if you can go back and trace your thought pattern to how you figured it out, it wasn't from God. It may be good, but that wasn't God speaking to you. I can tell when I listen to people, they, 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 they tell me what God was telling, us, telling them, and then they go back and give me the thought pattern of how they got there. The thought pattern of how they got there. Because thought patterns come from your brain, not from your spirit. It may be good. It may be thought patterns about something God did tell you, but the initial information if it's revelation, is something you didn't know and now suddenly you know it and it didn't come through your mind and it didn't come through your five physical senses. My Father who is in heaven revealed that to you. So Peter's feeling pretty good about himself right now. Be careful. 
Because very often at their moment of greatest revelation, at the greatest spiritual point, you're the most vulnerable. God spoke to me. And he kind of looks at James. John, God spoke to me. Nathaniel, Thaddeus, the two Judases. I'm the one God spoke to. I'm the one God spoke to. And gradually God gets lesser and I become bigger. Verse 18. I also say to you that Peter, upon this rock, that's not referring to Peter. It's a different Greek word, different play on words. Upon this rock, I will build my church. What is the rock? The rock is the revelation of who Jesus is. Jesus is saying, the foundation on which I will build, I'm not building a church here. I don't know how to build a church. But my belief is and my confidence is, if we follow Jesus, He will build His church, what He wants here. I don't want something I built. You don't want something I built, but we all want something He's built. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they that labor labor in vain. I will build my church and the church I build, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So Peter's got this revelation now on which Jesus said, on that revelation, I'm going to build my church. Verse 19. And I will give you the keys of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's the authority as the church to represent him. Verse 20. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Not yet. He tells them later on too. Verse 21. From that time, and so this is all a flow of something. So now they've had a revelation of who he is. Now they don't fully understand, but now they've seen who he is. It's out there now. And Jesus now tells them how he's going to carry out what his mission is and how he's going to carry it out. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the And He must go to Jerusalem and what? What's that word? Oh, that wasn't a big word. And what was the word? They're stronger over here. What's the word? What's the word? Victory in Jesus, my son. Suffer! Many things! from the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders. And it gets better. Not only suffer and be killed. That wasn't too strong either. And be killed. killed. Oh, there's more. And be raised on the third day. Victory in Jesus. Yeah, that's the victory. But the way to the victory was he had to suffer and he had to die before he could be raised. So the victory the church is being told about, which is real, the victory that we've been promised that is real, doesn't come by coming to church, although that's an important way to get there. The way to victory is through suffering and dying before you can be raised from the dead. 
Now, oh, we're not done yet. Okay. Verse 22. Now it gets interesting. Now what we have here, let's just break this down. We have God speaking through Peter, declaring who Jesus is. We have Jesus now saying, I will build my church, and here's how I'm going to start it. I've got to go to Jerusalem, and I've got to suffer. We'll talk about what that means later on. And then I've got to die, and then I'll be raised from the dead, and my church will be established, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is how God has announced His plan of salvation, His plan of victory to, to, to deliver every man, woman, and child that is willing from the control of Satan and the dominion of Satan. Because understand this, and we don't have time to get into all the scriptures that support it, but once Adam sinned, the, the, the spiritual authority over this earth was given to Satan. Satan tells Jesus, he's the God of, the Bible tells us, Satan is the God of this earth. Satan offered Jesus to give him the kingdom, which means he had to have it to give it to him. So this world, this earth, is not under God's control. Now God obviously is sovereign, which means nobody can tell him what he has to do. But God gave the authority in this earth to Adam, and Adam turned around and gave it to Satan, and God would not take it back except to do it legally. And that's, this is the legal method. So this world is, is, is totally... The spirits of this world are against God and His kingdom. Because the, the Satan, who was Lucifer, t- tried to rebel in heaven. And my own belief is he was not trying to take the kingdom away from God. My personal belief is he was jealous for the second position. And he wanted the position that the Christ had. So, so there's a there's a so Satan Satan hates Jesus. He hated him when he was in heaven. And when he was thrown down here in this rebellion. And God establishes, the, God establishes His kingdom on the earth through Adam and Eve. Satan wants to steal that back from God. But if you remember in verse 13, 15 of Genesis 3, God announced that He has a plan already figured out to, to, to redeem this. That there's going to come one that will, Satan will bruise his heel, but the one that's coming will crush his neck. Or his head. Satan knows what that means. He knows that the second person is going to come here at some point. And this plays into what happens here. So Peter, look at this. Jesus. So what you have here is God is announcing His way, His, his plan of victory of redeeming the world back to Himself. And God is announcing the way He's going to do it. He sent His Son, who is the Messiah, and He's going to come and He's going to suffer in our place. He's going to die to pay for our sins. And then He's going to be raised in victory. Amen. God's announced His way. Peter's having a problem with this. Now think about that. Because we'd never do this. Jesus is having a problem 
with the way God's announced he's going to do it. Peter's having a problem with the way God's announced he's going to redeem mankind. Peter has another idea. We'd never do that, I know. Because Peter's thinking about, this is so important to what we're going to talk about. Peter's looking at the situation through human understanding, through human reasoning, which is all he had at the time until Jesus begins to reveal things to him. And we're, right now, this ministry that they... Remember when they started, they just followed a man. But the man they followed begins to attract followers, other followers. Now a crowd. Then they see him doing supernatural things. Opening blind eyes. Unstopping deaf ears. Straightening out withered arms. Healing the maimed and the lame. Raising the dead. They saw authorities try to destroy him. And they couldn't touch him. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him speak to storms and they calm. So that's the man they started. When they started following, they didn't know anything except he said, now they're beginning to get input into what it means to follow him. They're seeing the success of where this is going. And they're tied themselves to this success. Oh. Oh. Ouch. Lord, we have to be careful once we start following Him that we don't begin to move our loyalty from Him to the success that He's bringing. And so now, they're they're projecting forward. This is going to get better. The crowds are going to get bigger. And He's the Messiah. He's come to deliver us. And in the back of their mind, what they really want to get delivered from is the Roman dominion. And so they're putting all these pieces together just the way our minds do. And now Jesus, right as He said, and I'm going to build my church based on this revelation. Now He says, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to go and suffer and die. No, 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 no. Whoa, 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 whoa. That doesn't compute. That's what Peter's saying, is you can't do that. So Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. After all, Peter's hearing from the Father. This can't possibly be. Wait a minute, I'm not hearing things right. So he pulls him aside and rebukes him and says, Far be it from you, Lord, This shall not happen to you. He's trying to protect Jesus. He doesn't need our protection. The whole point is here. Peter is substituting his own human understanding of what's going on, his own own human reasoning about how this can work and what Jesus has told him. That's, That's failure. That's not victory. This is so important to understand what I'm saying now. Because our thinking is the way we've been raised in this world. Until your mind is renewed to the Word of God and by the Spirit of God, this is how we think. It doesn't make sense. So we project what God must be wanting to do. But Jesus is very clear. I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer on your behalf and to die so that I may be raised from the dead in victory. 
This would mean defeat, not victory. And if he dies, where's that going to leave us? And see, this is how the church has learned to see victory. It's through the outward signs of success. So the larger the church is, the more successful it is. Success in the kingdom of God is not measured by numbers. Numbers are helpful because you can have more of an impact. That means you're reaching more people and you have more people to reach other people. But if we're sitting here 5,000 strong and we're in strife with each other, if we're sitting here 5,000 strong and all we do is come to church and hear a message and say, wasn't that good or I didn't like that or, you know, and then we just leave and we're not changed, then, 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 then I don't care how big we are, we're failing. See, God doesn't see things in terms of outward. He sees things in terms of spiritually, our maturity and our development, spiritually, whether we're doing His will. So this is man's view of God's plan. Now what you need to see is, look what Jesus then says about this. Verse 23. He turns to Peter and says, Oh, Peter, I don't know what I was thinking. I got this Messiah complex. (laughs) I don't know what I was thinking. (laughs) Thank you for correcting me. No, look what he says. He says to Peter, not that you were wrong, get behind me, Satan. Satan. Jesus is saying that when you take man's plans and ideas to apply them without using God's ways, who's really involved in that? That's why I spent a few minutes and took you back and realized, let's pull back and look what's really going on. People will ask me, you know, well, what do you think about the homosexuality issues and all this? And what do you think about the political issues? What I try to do is pull back and I want to see spiritually what's going on here. Spiritually what's going on here. And that's what we have to see here. This is not a man, Peter, simply impressed with the revelation he had. This is not simply the man, Peter, having trouble understanding why Jesus said, there is a spiritual battle going on here, and Satan is now trying to use, and is able to use, or trying to use, the same man that the the Spirit of God just used. Just because God uses you does not mean you're spiritual. Just because you prophesy and you get revelation doesn't mean you're spiritual. It just means you're open and sensitive. But understand this. If you're open and sensitive, you're open and sensitive to whatever spirits are talking. It takes more than spiritual sensitivity. It takes spiritual maturity. It takes a balance of the Spirit and the Word of God. And so here you've got Satan using man's reasoning and understanding to try to block the Son of God from doing what God's called him to do the way God's called him to do it. I'm going through all of this because what Jesus has told us is as followers of Christ, we're to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Him. And that makes no sense. I thought He came to deliver us and to love us and to set us free. He did. But this is His way of doing it. And when we argue with it and fight it and resist it, we're doing the same thing Peter did. We're allowing Satan to use us to stop the plan of God in this world. 
And why is Satan using you? You are an offense to me. Remember, it's a personal relationship we've got. He says, you're offending me. We don't think about that we can offend Jesus. He's not mad at him. We don't really think that we can hurt God. I mean, he's God after all. But one of the things that was so significant about a King David, although he committed a, two horrible sins of not just committing adultery with another man's wife, a close friend of his, one of his supporters, but then he arranged to cover it up by having his friend killed. And he didn't even do it himself. But when he was confronted with the sin, King David did not say, I'm so sorry for what I've done. This is a terrible thing of what I've done. He said, I have sinned against my God. And that, I believe, was the foundation on which God could redeem him and turn him around. Because it was all focused on God, not what it meant about him. He didn't say, I've been a failure as a king. He didn't say, I should never have done this. He didn't feel bad because he got caught. He, his heart broke and he knew he had hurt the one who'd been so good to him. And Jesus says, you've offended me. Remember, we're called to follow him. And now Peter is substituting his own reasoning and his own values and his own method to thwart, to stop what Jesus was called to do. This is good stuff. I mean, because I'm, I'm hearing some of this for the first time myself. Why? Why were you opened to do this? Look at these words. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of man. You're looking at this whole situation through the natural understanding of a human mind. And you've got to learn to look at things through God's perspective, through God's value system, through God's ways. How do you get to do that? You've got to start by trusting God. By trusting. So then what, what does he go on and say? Here's the background to what we started out with. So Jesus said to the disciples... Here's what, it, here, here's what I'm going to do. If you're going to follow me, this is what you've got to do. Anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, that was our introduction. Don't worry, I'm, we're not going to go past the time. <laughs> Why? And this is the trouble people have today. Why would a God that loves us so much, why would Jesus, who Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, why would, why would a, a Jesus that loves these men so much call them to suffer and to die? See, there's our human understanding. Does not compute, does not compute, does not compute, does not compute. So we throw one out or the other. Well, we're going to look at that. So there, if He loves us more than we love ourselves, and yet this is what He's telling us we have to do, somewhere there's things we don't understand. And see, that's what Peter did not do. Peter did not say, I don't understand it, Lord, show me. That would not have offended him. So we're going to look at several things here. 
First of all, God's method for delivering us was to suffer in our place and bear the punishment for what we did wrong ourselves. This is totally outside of the realm of human thinking. Why? Because the essence of our human thinking is selfish. What does this mean for me? In fact, most Christians are still at this place because what we're looking for is how much God loved me. What has God done for me? And we're still so much at the young stage of growth where it's all about what God's done for me. And He has. And we need to praise Him and celebrate those. But there has to come a place in our relationship where it begins to turn around and it's, all right, Lord, I love you. How does what I'm doing affect you? How is what I'm doing impacting you? What does this mean to you? What's valuable to you? What do you want me to do? Not my will, but your will be done. That's a sign of of human maturing when a child is not all about me. And they begin to come to the place where it begins to mean, what do you want to do? What's best for you? Begin to do the Father's will because we love the Father. And so, man's view is selfish. It's self-centered. This is why the Jews, the, the, the sincere Jews, missed that he was the Messiah. Because the prophecies they looked for is he was going to come in victory. He was going to give them victory over their oppressors. All the messianic prophecies about victory and overcoming. And vi- but what they missed is Isaiah 53, which is before he would give them victory, he would come as a suffering servant. And they missed that because they weren't looking for that. They were looking for the victory, not what God had to say. And so they missed it. 1 Corinthians 1.18. We're, we're talking about the man's way of looking at the suffering and dying and God's way. 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross, that's dying, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That sounds like victory to me, doesn't it? But he's saying that the victory, the power, comes through the cross. The cross is a place of unbelievable suffering and of humiliating death. But the victory, the power of God to save us came through Jesus' death and rejection and suffering on the cross. The victory we have cost him that suffering, cost him that humiliation, cost him that rejection, cost him that death. It cost him. But the power of God, but to the world's thinking, the cross is foolishness. My concern is that that attitude can creep into the church. And we would never say it's foolish but our attitude is can become, we just skip over that. Because we're in an age when, when who we are in Christ has been emphasized, and it should have been because that was lost for ages. And so much of the church gathered around the cross and sang about the cross, and now we move beyond the cross to the throne and to what God's won for us, but we can't ever forget that it's only through the cross. It's only through the cross. So we've got to come back to a time when that cross has value and meaning to us. That cross is our way to freedom and deliverance. It's only through the cross. It's only through the cross. First Corinthians 2, verse 7. 
We speak a wisdom of God. That's what we're talking about. God's way, God's wisdom, God's way of doing something. And you know, because Jesus is saying that if you're going to follow me, you've got to follow where I went, which is I suffered and I died. Then I was raised from the dead. We'll talk about that later on. And that's, man, that's God's plan. That's God's wisdom. And Paul says, we speak a wisdom of God. It's in a mystery. It's a hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. This is a wisdom. This is a way of doing, of deliverance that God ordained before the foundation of the world for our glory, verse 8. Which none of the rulers of this age knew if they'd known they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I believe that's talking about two different groups. I believe it's talking about sincere religious leaders. Because there were some that just hated Jesus because they were jealous of Him. But there were others that thought he was sincerely, sincerely committing blasphemy. But I believe that really speaks of Satan, principalities and powers. Because and underneath it is this thought. See, when, when Satan's whole goal was to stop Christ and destroy him. And Christ born, when he's, when he's filled with the Spirit, it's announced who he is, now the fight's on. It's clear this is the one that was prophesied for him. All, all stops are out to destroy him, stop him, defeat him. And Satan could not do that. He tried in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting by tempting him. That didn't work. He just got confronted with the Word of God. He tried having him thrown off a cliff by his own townspeople. That didn't work. Jesus walked through them in love. He tried destroying him with storms. He tried destroying him with with with. with treachery from within his own staff. He tried it, and none of it worked. And all of a sudden, at the end, suddenly it's working. He's arrested. He's beaten. Everything Satan's wanted to happen is happening now. He's been put into the Romans' hands to torment, to, dis- to, 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 to torture, to suffer. And he's nailed to that cross. And not only that, he now, he's now dies filled with sin and when you die in sin there's only one where you go down into hell and now Satan has him where he's always wanted him and I don't I'm just guessing maybe in the back of my this is too good to be true I don't know how this happened but the point is Satan could not grasp what Jesus was doing that Jesus was in hell to deliver hell from Satan's authority. And Satan couldn't get it. Why? Because the method God chose requires a supreme sacrifice of love that is totally, completely, and absolutely unselfish. The idea that a holy God... See, Satan's seen God. He knows how holy he is. That's why he hates him. That a holy, he's seen him in all his glory. The idea that a God in all that power and majesty and glory would set it aside, take on human flesh with all its limitations and all the exposure and temptation, and walk among those humans. And that he would intentionally do this to die and come into my control? That God would do that for 
these people? It doesn't compute. It doesn't compute to a selfish heart or a selfish mind. It's so far out and beyond our, his selfish thinking, which is what we were raised in, that he missed it. He didn't realize it was a trap. Because now Satan has fallen into the trap because the one he's wanted more than anything he has and he has him illegally because he died on that cross in sin. And then when the price is fully paid, the Spirit of the God came blowing into that place and he took in the place of death, he took this dead man and made him alive right in the clutches of Satan. And Jesus alive reached over and he took the keys of death, hell and the grave and he came out of there victorious. And I imagine what went through saying, no, no, wait a minute, I have him here legally because he died in sin. But here's the catch. None, oh, this is so important, none of that sin was Jesus' sin. It was yours and it was mine. This is what the love of God is like. Regardless of God's glory and holiness, power and majesty, and His right to demand everyone to worship Him. His right to punish everyone that's ever had a foul thought. Everyone that's ever had a rebellious thought. To punish them instantly. He would have every legal right to do that. But God didn't choose to exercise His rights. God didn't choose to exercise His holiness. God didn't choose to exercise His power. God chose to exercise His brand of love. Ephesians tells us that when we get to heaven, this is all ended up, God's going to use us to show the principalities and powers the wonderful magnificence of His grace. You see, you and I are trophies of His mercy, of His grace. What God wants to prove to all of the spiritual realm is not how powerful He is, not how glorious He is. To them, that's self-evident. He wants to prove His love and what His love will do with such a mess as us. So God's love provides victory through a way that to the world's understanding is failure and defeat. And that's the love that we're now called to have for one another. And as we go on and apply this, we'll see, that's why I've spent this time on it, we'll see that everything Jesus has called us to do requires us to walk in that kind of love. So the first reason is, well, that's the first reason, is that's the kind of love that God has. Ian, I'm jumping my notes around for those at the back there. Uh, We're going to go down to the bottom right now where it says fourth. The Bible says that in Isaiah 53.10, that it pleased God to bruise his son. Isaiah 53 is the suffering servant. 
It's where it says, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. No, that's not where it says. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. It, it says that he bore our sicknesses, carried our pains, that by his stripes we were healed. But it also says the chastisement for our peace was upon him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, to put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and shall prolong his days. Now, God's not sadistic. The reason it pleased the Lord to bruise his son is he was bruising his son to save you and me. You are the pleasure that motivated him to pay that price. Hebrews 12 said, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You were the joy set before him that motivated him to go to the cross and to suffer and to die. It wasn't because he enjoyed suffering. There are people that enjoy suffering. There's a pride based in this. This was not... This way, the, the, he suffered. But the joy that was set before him was you and me. The messes that we are. The messes that we were the mess we may continue to be, it was, that was the joy set before him. That's what God's love is like. It's totally foreign to the thinking of this world because the thinking of this world is ultimately self-based. And God's love has no self in it at all. We're going to go back up in the notes. To, uh, John, part of what, the call to suffer is simply because a function of being one with him. John 15 in John 15, we're going to look at verse 18. John 15 is where Jesus, we've talked about this before. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branch. And we use the example of a tree to show that he's talking about we're one with him and that the tree branches have no separate identity from the tree itself. The tree gets its identity from the branch and the branch gets its identity from the tree. It's all one. And the tree produces the fruit through the branch and the branch, and, and, and the branch produces the fruit in the the tree can't produce the fruit without the branch and the branch can't produce the fruit without the tree. So he's talking about all that we're one together. Now he goes down to an application of this. Verse 18. If the world hates you, know why. It hated me before it hated you. Next verse. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, that's what we taught you. You've got to see yourself. You're not part of the world. You're in Christ. Now, in Christ, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. Our relationship with the world is only through Christ. That's what he's saying here. So if you were of the world, in other words, if you weren't part of me, the world would love you because you're just like them. Yet because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Next verse. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. If they kept my word, they keep yours also. Next verse. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Have you ever noticed that if you're talking to somebody, you know, or you're on a plane or you're at work or you're talking, just chat, chatting, you know, people will relate to you just based on who you are. All right? They like you, don't like you, blah, 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 blah. The moment you mention Jesus, they no longer respond to you based on what they think of you. They now respond to you based on what they think of Him because they now have identified you with Him. If they love Him and serve Him, they'll love you. But if they hate Him, 
Jesus is saying, they're going to treat you the way they treat me. Why? Because you and I are one. Second reason, Acts chapter 9. This is where Paul has been knocked off his short horse. Paul was going to persecute the church. Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was going to persecute the church in Damascus. And at noonday, a, bolting, a bolt of light shone brighter than the noonday sun, and he fell off his horse. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? He said, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And I, he said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Then after that's all over, Paul gets up. He can't see. He's led into, into, into Damascus and he waits there and basically doesn't eat or drink anything for three days. Now, on the other side of the city, there's a certain disciple of Damascus called Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, verse 11. The Lord said, arise and go to a street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one Saul of Tarsus. Behold, he's praying. Verse 12. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him so that he may receive his sight. Verse 13. And Ananias said, Lord, I heard about this guy. Lord, how much harm he's done to your saints. Now here's a good example. Ananias is thinking in his human mind, something doesn't compute here. But notice what he does. Verse 14. He has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. I mean, what, what? Don't you know who this guy is? But the Lord said, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. Remember I said to you that we're living in a world that the spirit realm in this world is controlled by Satan, by the enemy of God. And the kingdom of God comes into this world and it's taken by violence, Jesus said. There will be opposition. And so that opposition, Paul, Paul if you read through the book of Acts, you'll see what Paul went through. If you read some of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians especially, you'll see some of the things he went through. And it's that, at one point, he got weary of this, and he said, he said you, know, there's a, you know, Lord, there's a messenger of Satan, and he's come to buffet me. And, th- and it says, three times I asked the Lord to remove him from me. What was that buffeting? It was persecution. Satan kept coming at him. Wherever he would have victory or something, there would be an opposition there. Wherever he preached the gospel, somehow there was opposition. He was trying to wear him down. The word buffet me to continually hit and try to wear down. is what a boxer does to try to wear down his opponent. His opponent may be stronger. His opponent may be more skilled. But he'll punch him in the ribs to wear his ribs down so that he can't take full breath. He'll wear him out so that he gets so tired. And that's what Satan comes to do, to buffet him. But he said, but I've sent, why would he send him out to go through that? Because he sent him to represent Christ, to take the gospel to places that are the enemy's strongholds. Like sending the Marines in to land on a beach. They're going to get opposition. There will be casualties. This is why in Acts 5.41 you see that some of them that were beaten 
for proclaiming Christ rejoiced because they had the privilege of suffering for His name. And the last thing we're going to look at is Philippians 3, quickly, verse 7. Something Paul had learned. What things were gained to me, these things I've counted for loss for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things for loss for Christ. For the excellent, uh, the New King James, the, the New American Standard says, for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, I've suffered the loss of all things. And he's not even necessarily talking about material things there. He's talking about his identity, his pride. Everything that, that we'll, when we talk about that we, have to, that we are called to, to suffer, the loss of, things that are actually killing you. They're ruining your, your walk with Christ. But he said, I've counted these things as laws. Notice he did it for their surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The word knowing there, or knowledge, means a, a close, intimate, personal experience of. So what Paul's saying here is that although I've been called to suffer for him, I've realized that, that as I follow him in his suffering, as I follow him in his dying, I am coming to know him personally at a level I didn't know him before and that makes everything I've given up worthwhile because it's far more valuable knowing him than it is holding on to all the things that I've had before. So Paul is saying here one of the reasons Christ calls us to suffer and to die with him is he understands that by going through that we're going to come in more intimate relationship with him than we can have by asserting our own things in our own life. I've had people, it's been a while, but I've had people ask me, do you still miss, you know, all you gave up to leave that big law practice and that big law firm and, and to give that up to go into the ministry. And you know what, that never entered my thinking. I don't ever, I didn't think about it at the time. I don't go back and think about what I gave up because then I haven't given it up. If I keep looking back at it and longing for it, I didn't give it up. Oh, I may have physically left it, but my heart's still looking, drawing some value from that. I never looked back. I never looked back. And that's what we're called to do to come to Christ. Give up everything. It doesn't mean, and we'll talk about, that may, doesn't necessarily mean you've got to leave your job and go out in the streets, but we'll talk about what it means. But what you've got to see is the incentive here is why would a Jesus that loves us call us to do that? Because he knows what's on the other side of it. He knows what's on the other side of it. He knows the benefit that's going to come from this. Acts 20. Verse 22. This is at the time when Paul's saying goodbye to the Ephesians, the, the people that he formed, the church that the book of Ephesus was written to. And he knows he's not going to see them anymore because he knows when he gets back to Jerusalem, he knows he's going to be arrested. Yeah. And it's a very touching, Acts 20 is a very touching chapter. Before he gets into the personal goodbye, he says, I, uh, and see, I now go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. In other words, in my spirit, I know I have to go to Jerusalem. Not knowing the things that will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. How could he do this? Look at the next verse. But none of these things move me. Good question to ask ourselves 
Because we'll talk about how do we get to this place. To ask ourselves, what, what things move us? What get us upset? What get us afraid? What, what things get us discouraged? Those are things that move us. Is it, is it the economy? Is it family relations? None of your family will have received Christ. They all, or all walked away and you seem like you're all alone. Is that moving you? Is that moving you to discouragement? Is that moving you to want to quit? That's moving, letting something move you. We're called to be immovable except by Christ. And we're coming to a time, in fact, in the Bible, <laughs> it says that, uh, I think it's in Hebrews, there will come a time when everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that what things are of God will remain. There's coming a time when things you've trusted in may get shaken and you'll find out what you're trusting in. Because the one thing that can't get trust shaken is God's Word together with Him Himself. What things move you? I'm asking myself this. What things move me? What do I get passionate about? What do I get discouraged about? What do I get frustrated with? Those are things that move us. But none of these things, none of the threats knowing I'm going to face persecution, knowing I'm going to be arrested. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. Revelation 12 says, and they overcame him. <sighs> Victory in Jesus. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Yeah, the blood of Jesus. Oh, the blood of Jesus. By the word of their testimony. And a lot of people stop there, but there's a third one. And they loved not their life, to the death. I do not count my life as dear to myself. Why? So that I may finish my race, look at this, with joy. If you're struggling being joyful with what you're going through, maybe you need to count, not count your life quite so dear. That I may finish my race with joy. God doesn't just want you to make it. He wants you to finish it with joy. That's victory. When nothing can move you. That gets the devil frustrated and angry. Throws everything he's got at you and it doesn't move you. You're still joyful. You're still serving God. Why? Because you've not put your trust in all those other things but in Christ alone. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to, this is what it is, to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. That's why we're here. That's why you're here on this earth that's why I'm here on this earth. That's why we're here as a church. That's why you're here at this church. And everything else comes out of that. What we'll begin to talk about next time, we'll begin to look at what is this persecution. And then we'll begin to look at how, how can we go from where we are to where He's called us to be. And the encouraging thing is God's not necessarily expecting you to get there by the time you get home today. And we'll talk about that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your love and your faithfulness and your goodness. We've heard some difficult things today, some challenging things today. But your Spirit's able to take those words sown into our hearts and to water them and cause them to grow. Help us to begin to see, Lord, by revelation inside what you're calling us to do in following Christ. 
and to not learn to think these things through with the standards that the world uses. Help us to renew our mind that we may prove what is the good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. We thank you for the grace that you give us, Lord, as we begin this journey and follow along this journey together. The grace to cover us when we stumble, when we balk, when we fail, that we can get up again and we can go on again. And that's all because Jesus came, suffered, died, and was raised for us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, we're going to be sharing the Lord's table together.